0: Um, If there's anyone here that I don't know yet, my name is Jaron. I'm one of the elders, and I get the opportunity to preach God's word um, while our pastor is off on a short vacation. So we can be praying for him and just um, asking the Lord to bless that time and refresh him as he's away. So as we gather this Lord's Day, we'll be finishing up our Advent series. Uh, In these past weeks, we've looked at the promise of a Savior, the need for a Savior... And waiting for the Savior. And last week we looked at the arrival of the Savior. Today we'll be looking at the return of the Savior. Now, I know some of you must be asking yourself, wasn't Christmas last week? Why are we still in the Advent series? What does the return of Christ have to do with Advent? The short answer is, the return of Christ has everything to do with Advent. It's the final Advent. The word Advent means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. So we're looking at the second and final arrival of Christ. Again, as we've gone through the Christmas season, we focused on and studied the first Advent of our promised Savior, Jesus Christ. The promised seed of the woman who had bruised the serpent's head from Genesis 3 and saved for himself a chosen people. We've seen how he being God humbled himself, by taking on humanity and was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus being truly God, he lived a sinless and perfect life. Being truly man, he stood in our place and took the punishment for our sins. That for all who believe he gives the benefits of his perfect life and bore their punishment on this cross and died a sinner's death and ascended back to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the father making intercession for his people that he bought with his own blood and is now reigning as king. But that's not all. He promised to one day return, not as a helpless baby, but as a king to judge the world. And that's what we'll be studying and looking at today. <clears throat> so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And we'll be going through verse 13 this morning. So as you turn, hear the word of the Lord. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Will you pray with me? Father, as we come before you this morning, as your people, here to worship you, God, I ask that you would guide our hearts. You would draw us in, that we may see wonderful things in your word. God, let us hold on to your promises with joy where your word warns us of how dangerous and pointless it is to live against you. God, would we we be warned? God, would we see your beauty, your love, your justice? Would we see your glory in your word this morning? God, I ask that you would guide the preaching of the word and God, I ask that you, would, uh, that you would guide the reception of your word in the hearts of your people. That we would truly long to be servants who follow your commands. Because they're not heavy, you've brought us into salvation. You've brought us into relationship with you. And by your power, through the Holy Spirit, we can live lives that honor and glorify you. So God, we give you today... We give you this time, and we ask that it be all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we seek to know and apply God's word this morning, we'll see that God is not slow, but patient in fulfilling his promise, which will expose the works of this world. So we live lives of holiness and godliness, awaiting Christ's return. If you're taking notes this morning, that is our expositional outline. Now before we get into our exposition, uh, I just want to touch on a few things. First, I want to remind us that even though we've been in the Advent series, these sermons haven't been topical sermons, where a person would choose a topic and gather as many passages as he can that seems to support what he's saying. But as an under-shepherd of God's flock, it's our conviction to preach expositionally, where we simply strive to expose or exposit God's word which gives life to his people for all his glory, standing under its authority, not over it. So with that being said, these sermons have been expositions of particular passages that naturally speak to the topic of Jesus' advent. So if you came here this morning wanting to hear a topical sermon about the end times, I'm sorry you'll be disappointed. What you will hear by God's grace is a Christ-exalting exposition of Second Peter chapter 3. With that being said, let's get into our text. Now, 2 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. This letter was most likely written before Peter's death, just shortly before, between AD 67 and 68. And we see that hinted at in chapter 1, verse 14. Already just 30-some years after Christ's ascension back into heaven, False teachers had crept crept into the church, seemingly to use Christian liberty as a license to sin. We see that in chapter 2, verse 14. They were guilty of denying the Lord, chapter 2, verse 1. They they despised authority and slandered celestial beings, chapter 2, verse 10. And scoffed or mocked at the second coming of Christ. These are the false teachers Peter is warning the church about. And the context of where we'll pick up in verse 8. So we see in verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Three things are said in verse 8 that I want to point out. First, Peter says not to overlook this one fact, which is referencing the false teachers we see in verse 4 through 5 of the same chapter. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. See, these false teachers overlooked the fact that the very God who promised the second coming of Jesus was the god that spoke creation into existence by his word and we should be reminded that reminded by this to trust in god's promises because what god says comes to pass secondly looking at peter or reading from peter we see him say in verse 8 beloved those who god loves his church his redeemed people third he continues in verse 8 that with the lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day which is a quote from psalm 90 we see in psalm 90 verse 2 through 4 before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth uh, and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are god you return man to dust and say return o children of men of man For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So in response to the mocking of false teachers, we see the truth of how small and limited our perspective is in regard to time when it's in contrast to God's eternity. What is a lifetime for us is nothing to God in regards to time. Then in verse 9 we see, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Countering the accusation of the false teachers, you see the affirmation that God is not slow or lazy or uncaring. It's not out of passiveness that Christ hasn't returned, but out of God's loving patience, And who is he patient towards in this passage? The text says you. It is the beloved that God is patient toward, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Many use this verse out of context, trying to teach a type of universalism, that all will be saved because God's not wishing that any should perish. Or open theism, which says, God is not wishing that any should perish, but some still do. So it's out of God's control. If you imagine a God shaking his hands at the earth saying, I wish you wouldn't be lost. I wish I could save you, but it's out of his control. That's open theism. But is that what the text is saying? No, the context doesn't allow it. We see God's patience is directed actively towards his people he will save. So we see the text saying that we see that God is not slow but patient towards the objects of his grace. We know that God doesn't delight in death of anyone. Ezekiel 18.32 speaks to that. He takes no joy in the death of the wicked. But God's patience here in this context is clearly towards his beloved. So we're warned from this not to fall into disbelief but to believe God's promises and persevere in faith. So do you believe God's promise to return? Do you truly understand that every passing moment is God's hand of mercy being extended to those he will save through the gospel? And do you understand where your responsibility lies in that as a Christian, as someone who truly believes your are Christ's? How are people... How are people saved? Through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is God's power of salvation for all who will believe. So understand when we see that every passing moment is a moment of mercy, there's also responsibility in that. So I want to ask are you sharing the gospel with those around you who are lost? And maybe another question to ask is do you know what the gospel is? Do you know how to share the gospel? Also, what we see the text teaching is God's eternity. And we see it in light of of man's being here for just a moment. We see man's smallness in light of who God is. And in God's patience, we see his mercy. We also see his patience, not being lazy, but having a purpose. We also see God's love in his patience for his people, resulting in God's glory being displayed through his patience. So I want to ask, do you see glory in God's patience? I don't think our, our culture really puts a lot of value in being patient. I think they, they often equate patience with passiveness. But we see a godly patience is one with purpose. Purpose. It's strength being withheld, which takes strength. But God does that in love for his people. So what we apply from this for the struggling Christian, remember how God speaks of you in this passage. Beloved, in his love he is patient with you. We look at Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then... If you are weak this morning, Christian, draw near to Christ. And for the unbelieving, you should see your smallness before the Lord of ages. He's not slow or unaware of your disobedience. Learn from verse 7 of this chapter. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. Destruction and destruction of the ungodly. Don't count his patience as laziness or slowness, but see your doom and seek Christ in repentance. For those whose hope is in Christ's return will result in their joy, but to the rest of the world, his return will result in their judgment. And we see this as we continue into verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it, done on it, will be exposed. First, we see that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. When do thieves usually break into houses? Was that? At At night. That's right. At night when everyone's asleep. When everyone's having sweet dreams. See, this passage isn't talking about Jesus being stealthy, but it points to the fact that the world isn't watching. It's not waiting for him, the world is asleep. Next, the language to describe his coming is violent and catastrophic, where the heavenly bodies or the planets, the very worlds in space, will be burned up and dissolved, and the created order. And the works that are done on it will be exposed. This language is of judgment. It's the light of God's justice being shined on the works of the world. This will be the judgment of the unbelieving world. We see this referenced in verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Again, at the end of verse 10, it says, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This refers to when the deeds done by hands of mankind will be judged by God. We see this event in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. according to what they had done. When death and Hades were thrown in, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. As we go back to our text, we see from verse 10, that the whole creation, as we know it, will be judged. So what we really see this, this text pointing to is as we see that though many don't believe Christ will come again, his return will be sudden, burning up and exposing all that a godless world holds dear. So we're warned, don't place your hope in this world. One day it will all be burned away, but look to what lasts Matthew 6 verse 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in Christ's return, Will he come like a thief, stealing what is precious to you? Or will his coming fulfill what is precious to you? We see in this text that it speaks of the last judgment. The old fallen universe will be destroyed along with every achievement of mankind. Every single act ever committed will be brought into the light and judged by God. And God will be glorified as a just judge. So what we should seek to apply to the non-Christian, understand this. See that God is even gracious in the fact that he forewarns you in your unbelief. If you know this to be true, don't harden your heart this morning, but seek Jesus as Savior and Lord. And for those who suffered at the hands of evil men, where evil men hide, will one day be burnt and torn away. And they will stand before God and give an account of their crimes and will be righteously judged. Understand, no offense will get past God's justice at Christ's return. After displaying what will come for a godless world, Peter goes on, and we see in verse 11 through 12, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. In light of the doom that faces those who follow their own way, here we see Peter calling the church to persevere. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, Everything that so many of us hold so dear, it's going to be burnt away like ash. What sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Which makes us ask the question, where am I devoting my life into right now? Where is the energy of my life going into? Is it going into something that will last and is eternal? Or am I giving all my time, my energy, my resources into what will one day burn away. Peter, directed by the Holy Spirit, now takes our focus off what's going to fail us to what will last. Where false teachers kept trying to divert the church's attention off hope in Christ into selfishness and sinfulness, we see that their end is destruction. But our focus should be to live lives of holiness which is to be set apart from sinfulness, to be used for God's purpose and glory, and to be godly, to emulate God in his righteousness, knowing we've been called from darkness into light, knowing who our identity is in Christ. That is who we are. We are Christ's. And verse 13 continues. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. First we see in verse 13 God, God's word contrasting between the fate of the ungodly who have simply been left to their own choices and the church as those who have been given a promise. But according to his promise we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want you to feel the love of God in that. If you truly would identify as a Christian, if you truly believe Jesus is your savior, you have been given a promise that one day you will dwell with him in a new heavens and a new earth. And when we see where righteousness dwells, do you see the sweetness in that? Do you know that every struggle you ever experience, every pain, every temptation that you're constantly bombarded with will be gone and will be in the presence of God who's the author, who's the source of joy and purpose and hope. That's what we're promised. The only other time the Greek word for promise seen in verse 13 is used in the Bible is in chapter 1, verse 4 of the same book. We see in chapter one, starting in verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. I just add that to further show how graciously and lovingly God is for us, where he has by his power granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, by which he has granted us these great and precious promises. His promises to us are by his grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, for his glory alone. And where do God's promises to us through Christ take us at his glorious return? Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here, uh, here Peter quotes from Isaiah 65. And we see in verse 17 and 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And Revelation 21 picks up the same the same passage and goes further, where we see in the new heavens and the new earth being realized from chapter 21, starting in verse one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the Holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, Also, he said, "Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true." Do you see the new heavens and the new earth as a place where righteousness dwells, is pointing to where God dwells, because God is righteous. Understand that when we, one day, whether through death or through his return, That one day we get to be with him. That's what heaven is, being with God. It's not being in a place in the clouds, but it's to be in the presence of God where righteousness dwells. Free from sin, free from pain, free from crying. The former things have passed away. This world will pass away and all the works of this world. Knowing we are Christ's, we should grow in holiness and godliness as a people who belong in a new heavens and a new earth so we're warned for those who profess christ not to get distracted from growing in holiness and godliness hebrews 12:14 says strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the lord again we know the new heavens and the new earth are where righteousness dwells. God will not be in the presence of sin. So if if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, know that it's unfitting for you to be living in your sin, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, we strive in holiness and godliness. We are transformed. We are renewed into his image. So are you actively seeking to grow in holiness and godliness this morning? And if not, don't let this be a beating over your head, but let this be an encouragement. See where your future is. See where we belong. So are you actively seeking to grow in holiness and godliness? And what are you allowing into your life that keeps you from growing? Is growing in holiness and godliness... More important than your favorite hobby or pastime? Or more important than your family or your job? In the early Americas, a pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards, wrote in his diary as a teenager a list of resolutions that began with this introduction. I think talking about someone's resolutions is really fitting as we go into the new year. So he wrote this in his, in his introduction. Being sensible that I, am, that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. There are, 20, um, there are 70 resolutions in all, and I would highly encourage you to read them when you get a chance. This resolution, or in the resolution number seven, I think we can all learn from and seek to apply for ourselves. It reads, Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. How convicting is that? (laughs) How many of us could say, if I was to stop you and ask you, are you doing something that you're afraid to do if this was the last hour of your life? How many of you would say no to that? How many of you would say yes, everything I do I'd joyously be found doing if Christ returned right now? Are you living for Christ's glory? Are you living in light of his return? Is there anything in competition with your sanctification in you becoming more like Christ and you seeking to be with him. Do you feel joy at Christ's uh, second coming? If not, don't, don't be down. Don't leave this place without taking that to the Lord. Bring that before the Lord. He'll hear you. Ask him, why don't I feel joy? What is there in my life that would keep me from having joy, thinking about your coming? We see verse 13 teaching us about heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and the need to wait on the Lord's timing while hastening toward his return through our obedience to him. And we're reminded about holiness, to be set apart for God's purpose. So as, as we get close to, to ending this morning, what we want to apply to our lives is to live every day to our Lord with joy, knowing we will one day be with him for eternity where righteousness dwells. We should share the gospel with the lost, knowing their fate without Christ as Savior. And we should help each other as the church to keep our eyes on him as we wait and encourage each other to grow in holiness and godliness because God is faithful. So as we come to a close this morning, I want to end with this question. Are you living in light of Christ's return? Let's pray.